Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected conversations. Before we jump into today's episode, I'd like to first give a shout out to Forever Sound and a special thank you for the music sample called Sexy, which is what you hear at the beginning and ending of my show. Today's episode is going to pick up on some of the topics that were discussed in the previous episode, in episode six, where my husband joined me. My featured guest on today's episode is Cordell Winrow. Cordell is another person that I have connected with thanks to the technology of social media and specifically the platform of Facebook. Not that anybody needs to advertise for them, nor should they, but however... Um, It is because of Facebook. It is because of our ability to connect with people from all across the globe that I was able, again, to establish a really authentic and genuine friendship with my next guest. Now, I'm not just featuring him because he's a friend. He's also a confidant. And not only that, but he has incredible life skills that are also his daily talents that he puts into his work um, and to his family that I really appreciate. Cordell Winrow is a life and fitness coach. I think that's one of the reasons why I was drawn to hearing more of what he has to say. He has such an optimistic view on life. He has such a positive method and approach to dealing with obstacles, dealing with struggles, dealing with suffering. Cordell has a very unique and particular experience. He has been vulnerable enough to share a lot of personal details within this conversation. Some of the topics we're going to talk about today, talking points that were have been featured in some previous episodes, we talk about marriage. We talk about our opportunity to learn from obstacles both inside of our relationships and outside within our lives. We're going to talk about what it was like for him to be the short black kid. We're going to talk about mental muscle building. He has a great approach to reminding himself how to accept all things as a gift, and that's by acknowledging that opposition and resistance are the quickest ways to grow. We talk about insta-erections and how we overanalyze our obstacles. We talk a little bit about post-traumatic slave syndrome, and we also talk about the space of what happens. This conversation was very meaningful and inspirational for me. It actually provoked me to consider a different perspective that I have been pushing back against. And so I hope that's what it brings for you. Enjoy today's show. Please feel free to leave commentary. Let me know what you think. And if you're interested in being the next guest on Recorded Conversations, please make sure that you reach out to me. So hello, welcome, Cordell. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Recorded Conversations. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing today, Danielle? I'm great. And so just to give kind of a little background for the listeners, Cordell and I have been friends for a while now. Um, Cordell lives in California. I live in Minnesota. But we bonded, I think, over God and theological conversation. And since then, we've just kind of maintained this really incredible relationship. 
where we can talk about being a spouse, being a parent, and what we're relating to life. And so that's one of the things I really appreciate about our conversations. They always they always unfold some kind of an, an epiphany, it seems. We we tackle topics, specific specific topics that other people are raging about, given whatever uh, is trending. And we kind of break that down a little bit and and try and understand what the anger and the outrage is about. And I really appreciate kind of your perspective and the way that you, I would say, filter everything everything through the lens of the the lifestyle that you're living with your your healthy lifestyle and with as being a father and being a life coach and being a fitness coach. And so with that said, Cordell, we were speaking the other day about how we deal with the obstacles we receive. And I really appreciated what you had to say about first kind of looking at our obstacles as their opportunities. And so I'm wondering if we can pick back up from there. Most definitely. I've been thinking about that conversation since we had it. And it's been very eye-opening, really, when it comes to the obstacles that we do encounter and how we encounter those obstacles. So it's definitely something that I'm really looking forward to diving into. And one of the things that really uh, brought this particular question to the surface for me is this book study that I'm doing with a couple of other friends. Um, It's a book written by Alexander Shia, and it's called Heart and Mind, The Four Gospel Journey to a Radical Transformation. And so ultimately what what I'm on the path of doing right now is transforming myself. And so one of the the great questions revealed in the Gospel of John is, is how we receive joy how we see everything as a gift and how we accept and receive obstacles as a gift. And you put a nice spin on it and said, you see obstacles as opportunities. And that was, that was something that I couldn't, I was having a very difficult time wrestling with initially because when you see something that, that appears to be an obstacle for somebody else that might almost push them down completely, maybe even mow them over you can appreciate their story. They're kind of, I fell to the bottom. I rose back up to the top. But when it happens for ourselves, it's a hell of a lot more difficult to maintain that kind of mentality that we see acted out by somebody else. And so I'm wondering if you can relate any experience to such an obstacle that you turned into an opportunity. Well, I will first say most of the obstacles that I have overcome and they've become opportunities always started out as a headache and a half. I mean, that's the complete honest truth. A lot of times you don't look at the circumstance and the situation that you're facing as something that can be an opportunity for you, especially when fear gets pumping and these negative emotions crop up and and it's the internal dialogue really that begins to tell you that you can't do something or this is going to fail or look what you've done. I mean, all sorts of negative bullshit just comes, comes your way in the middle of this seemingly insurmountable task that's in front of you. What I have found for myself 
is the louder the chaos and the noise is, the more potential for this thing in front of me to be a doorway into something greater than I had anticipated. Oh, I like that. But it a lot of times really depends on getting still and actually looking at the circumstance or the obstacle in front of me and really beginning to do a self-assessment of, okay, what is it that I'm really afraid of? What is it that's coming to the surface? Why is all this noise here? And how did all this noise take up so much of my internal bandwidth? And as I process through those things, I begin to see, oh, this thing, this thing that's in front of me isn't there to destroy me, but it's an opportunity for me to grow, but it's also an opportunity for me to surpass limitations that I've put upon myself that I never realized that I put upon myself. You said something the other day that I I think I actually wrote down and you said opposition and resistance are the quickest ways to grow. Absolutely. And yeah. And I, you know, that's something that a lot of people want to push back on. Like really growth shouldn't be all that difficult. And I've said it too, right? Like I've, I've gone through these, these ideas in my head where, okay, well, growing isn't supposed to feel like this absolute suffering. But then what I've also been discovering through this journey that I'm on is that I have to look at all forms of suffering as a gift. And that itself is another idea that is very difficult for people to wrap their heads around, like suffering as a gift. What are you saying? A kid that gets leukemia as a gift? Maybe not in that moment but maybe it's teaching you to prepare for something later on. I don't know how you, how many different ways you could take it, but there's an optimistic twist that you can put on every amount of suffering that you see take place. Well, if you just look at, um, as you stated earlier, I'm a fitness trainer. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that I have to continually tell people is that it's not going to be easy transforming your body. In fact, it's going to be painful It's going to suck. You're going to have days where you are having these withdrawals from sugar. You're going to have these days where you just want to eat the carbs, but then you have to not have that big old sandwich that you want to have. There are days where you have to lift heavier than you want to. There are days where you just don't want to get out of bed because you're so sore. And so you have to push yourself to get out of bed. But doing all of those things is what helps transform your body to what you want it to become. So if you want to become more muscular, you have to go through the opposition and the resistance of the weights that you have to push and lift every day. You have to overcome the mindset of, I can just do it later, because if you just try to do it later, you'll never actually get it done, and the body transformation that you want to see never happens. So all of the opposition that you uh, face, even in body transformation, it's not easy, but here's the, here's the twist. When you look at bodybuilders, when you look at those athletes who are lifting weights, more often than not, you will not hear them say, oh man, this sucks. More often than not, they're pumped up and enthusiastic about getting ready to do those reps. It's because they found the purpose and they found the joy in doing what they're doing because they're seeing the opportunity for the body transformation. No longer is it a chore. No longer is it something that is hard to do. It becomes fun. Yeah, I love that. I agree with that. When I really started taking um, physical fitness seriously, and I did this way later in life than I should have, but 
man, was it hard. And there were so many times where I wanted to give up. And there were so many like, like weight goals that I set for myself lifting wise, where ultimately I'd be like, well, I'm thinking far too big. That's way too much weight. That's going to be way too heavy for me. And then when I'd hit those goals, I'd look back and kind of laugh at myself like, and I thought that was going to be heavy. And so I think we overanalyze our obstacles more than we need to. And that itself creates a stress and also a pretense that kind of makes us downright scared to try new things because we consider the consequence, we consider the pain, we consider the suffering, we consider the amount of weight that we may have to lift. And it just seems like it's too hard. What that also makes me think about is something else that we were talking about a few days ago. And that's this idea that in regard to knowing and the responsibility of knowing, it just looks too difficult. And so we do that with ourselves, both with transforming our our bodies, our minds, our hearts, and, and, and physically our body. And we do that when we're transforming the information that we rest on and we sit with and we believe. And we set up this we, it's almost like we create more obstacles out of the one minute obstacle that happens to fall on our path. Have, have you seen or experienced this kind of similar mentality? Like when you're starting with new clients that they, they'll, they'll throw out all the excuses in the world why they can never meet those goals. And then you help them meet it and you see them kind of look back in hindsight and go look at all that, that energy I wasted and worried over. Actually, I can think of three clients that I have right now that started the journey pretty much exactly as you're describing it. Um, I have one um, who shall remain anonymous, anonymous, but in her journey, it was all about, you know, she didn't feel comfortable going into the gym. She didn't have confidence. She didn't feel like she had the right body type. And so when we started the journey of, you know, personal training for her, the goal wasn't, you know, her lifting any certain amount of weight or losing body fat percentage. The goal was to bring her confidence to step in the gym on her own. Mm. Seven months later, she's a completely different woman. Um, seven months later, we've gone from functional training all the way up to power lifting now. And this is a woman who never thought she could lift anything over 25 pounds because it was too heavy. She's deadlifting 150 pounds easily. She's squatting mm. 135 pounds easily. I mean, she's doing all these compound movements that she never thought she'd be able to do because she's not an athlete, but she's doing these movements and she's getting a lot stronger to the point where she's like, I don't want to do a lot of the lightweight lifting anymore. I just want to focus on getting even more strength. I want to focus on this power lifting. I want to focus on my form and my technique. Like I love now that I can come in here and not feel like I'm the oddball here in the gym. But for her, she had always thought that she would look goofy or funny and she would be outcast and people would laugh at her. She's never experienced anyone laughing at her where we're at. In fact, most of the trainers that are on staff with me that work with me are giving her compliments. They see her working out and they see her working out hard and they're like, Oh my goodness, you're doing an amazing job. Keep it up. You've got this down. So it's been a confidence boost for her. And 
all it took was just saying yes to one intro personal training session, which got her hooked. And so how do you pace people from hyperconfidence? It's, uh, do you ever do you ever have instances where people want to like, you know, go big or go home far oh. too fast before they're ready for it? And how do you how do you encourage them to pull back a little bit and work through all the process and steps before they go for that heavy weight? Um, for me, being a coach, uh, it, it stems from a knowledge base. Um, I do functional assessments. And my job when I'm doing those functional assessments and movement assessments is to give them a clear diagnosis of their movement patterns, what's working, what's not working. And when I have these hyper-confident people come in, more often than not, my first mode of operation is to show them where all of their dysfunctions are because that begins to sober them up because more often than not, they haven't, they didn't realize that their body wasn't working in certain ways. And so put them through these analysis to actually cause them to have to take a step back and say, oh crap, uh, what do I do now? If I can get them into the space of what do I do now, we can actually begin to progress them where, the way they need to. I like that. And do you ever have people come in that are just so cocky that you you help them work through the fact that they're just kind of like using that as a covering for all of their fears and their traumas and and, and their, their bigger frustrations that they just haven't dealt with? Um, more often than not, I have not encountered truly cocky people like that. More often than not, when I do my assessments with my clients, um, by the time we're done with the assessment, we've already riddled out what's actually going on. It, it's just kind of like that kind of thing is my niche. And so when I deal with people, I, I'm dealing with their um, inhibitions. I'm dealing with the way that their thought patterns, the, the way they think about things, because a lot of what I need to do for that person comes out via them talking. So I just need to get them talking a little bit so I can begin to see what's actually going on. So most of the movement analysis that I do, though I can see the bodily dysfunctions, it's the talking points of the 20 minutes that I sit down with them before we even get into that movement analysis that actually begins to let me know what's actually going on with them and where I need to start. So not only do you do fitness and life coaching, but you're also a dad and a husband. And I just thought it would be a fun question to throw out because I was thinking about this today just myself and, and thinking about something my daughter said. So my daughter recently had a baby. He just came home from the NICU and we were really happy about that because he was born about three months early. And she said something that I snickered at because I remember saying it when I had her. And it was sometimes I just sit back and I can't realize I actually like created this human. It's been a while, but sometimes I do step back and I go, wow, I like created these little things that I've developed relationships with. And so I'm just kind of in awe of that. But when I think about those things and I think about the, the greatest struggles and the most difficult challenges that parenting has presented to me as a gift... What's one of your biggest parenting struggles that you had to understand how to receive as a gift? I would say it has nothing to do with my kids, but everything to do with my relationship with my wife. Mm, do tell. The kids, for whatever reason, I'm really nonchalant 
when it comes to the kids because I realize they're 17 months and three months. There's not much that they know about what's going on. The behaviors that they have, I just chalked it up to you're 17 months. You're not even two years old yet. Like it stands <laughs> to reason you're doing some crazy crap right now. Stands to yeah. reason that you're losing your ever-loving mind because you haven't slept. Stands <laughs> to reason that you're fighting this nap because you think you're going to miss out on something. So that, that in and of itself is not so hard. I think the hardest thing is the fact that I work, you know, anywhere between 12 and 16 hours during the day. Mm. Or rather, I should say, I'm away from the house because I, I can also have to travel for work. I'm away from the house to anywhere between 12 and 16 hours during the day. And that's hard. Downright frustrating most of the time. But the, the biggest life lesson and the biggest opportunity has been how do I become a husband that can transcend my frustrations with how, you know, the house is set up or the fact that things didn't get cleaned up. Like, how do I transcend that and use it as an opportunity to just be a better husband? Mm. Because the, the facts of the matter are, you know, like when you've put in 16 close to 16 hours during your day, the last thing that you want to do is come home, wash dishes, cook for yourself, anything like that. Yeah. You know, that's the last thing that you want to do. And so it's really easy to get frustrated and point, point the finger and point blame. And so the opportunity that's afforded me right now is to learn how to work through my tiredness and really be more focused and disciplined on making sure that I'm a leader. It's one thing, you know, we, we, we talk about it, like certain, some leaders, they just, they speak and they expect you to do, but the greatest leaders are the ones that lead by example. Yeah. If you want things to get done in a certain way, then no matter how tired you are, no matter how frustrated you are, you got to be the one to lead the, lead the way. I knew I had tonight's podcast going. My wife is super tired right now. Um, our kids have been nuts today and the youngest mm -hmm. just had a crying fit pretty much all all day she started dinner and i was just like you know what just sit down and i'll take over dinner i'll get everything taken care of and i, I jokingly said to her i was like because she came into the kitchen asked me if the food was done if i got the meat from the oven out and i said honey you got to trust me i do know what i'm doing like, i know how to cook I know how to make sure that it's done in a timely manner. You just got to trust me. And she's like, ah, I'm sorry. I just, like, it, it's natural. I'm like, but this is an area where you can grow to trust me. When I say that I've got something, you don't have to, you know, come behind me and check on me. Mm, man, I can relate to that. I'm the same way with my husband. Sometimes he's, he'll see me on my desk. I got my laptop open. I've got four word documents open. I'm writing. I've got highlighters everywhere. I have seven different books open and five notebooks. And he comes in, he's like, um, are you working tonight? Yeah. You want me to do dinner? Uh, yes. Thank you. But then what I do, depending upon what kind of working mood I'm in, I'll ha I have this tendency to go and kind of like criticize this or that, or this is what you're making. Or I get really mad when he just wants to go get takeout, right? I'm like, really? I cook. I cook like three, four course meals. Come on. What's going on here? All you can, you know? But he's like, can you just let me work with what I got? 
and let me take over and relinquish the responsibility and have faith that I got this and then not criticize me for helping you. And I have to go, okay, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I can step back. I got that. But it's something I think we don't really, and I I will say this from, from the perspective of a wife as recalling my own, the way my own mother would react to my father when he wanted to help in regard to all of the other women I've ever had conversations with about, oh yeah, we laugh at the way our husband helps. But it's like, maybe it's teaching us that we need to just relax a little bit and we don't need to be in control. Like I'm all, I'm like, this is my house. It's done my way. But it's like, it's okay because I can't really control everything and I don't have to. And I've just noticed over the last few years, um, I've really let go of my kind of OCD with how clean and organized I am because I had to. It was getting to the point where it would stress other people out if I acknowledged a mess. And then they'd be like, oh, shit, shit. Mom noticed we didn't pick up. Oh, shit. You know, or or my husband like, oh, you just went you just went and put yourself to bed. But um, I, I saw that you didn't like tidy up the pillows and the blankets and round up the dishes and, and lock the door. And, you know, I'm nagging him and he's like okay, yeah, or you could have just told me to do that and I would have done it and you didn't have to get mad, you know? So it's like, for me, I, I relate to to, to what uh, the anxiety your wife must sometimes have. Like, okay, I'll, here's the reins, okay, I guess I'll let you have it. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a bird's eye view to manhood in this <laughs> process. Um, once we get nagged or this happens quite frequently, we stop wanting to help and we stop helping altogether. Not because, not because we want to make things difficult, but there's something within us as men where we just once, once bitten, twice shy. Yeah. It's like, what, what, what's the point? Like, okay, I want to help, but if you're going to yell at me or get on my case for helping, why should I even help? Like that's yeah. a waste of time. That's a waste of my time. That's a waste because you can get it done better. But then on the flip side, as a husband who has the opportunity to grow into something and lead the way, like we get into that mode of I like what's the point of me helping? Well, the point of me helping is so that I can steer this and lead this in a direction that makes it beneficial for both of us. I understand that my wife is stressed. She understands that I'm stressed. So I've just got to lead the way and say, hey, I got this. Whether you like the way I'm doing it or not, I got this. You know, it's it's one of those things where it's really difficult because, like, our egos get bruised. You just ask me to do this, then you like, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> like, what do you want from me? Do you want me to do it or not? <laughs> and and one of the one of the craziest things that, you know, in the mind of a man, it's like, I worked 12 hours today. I offered to help and then I got yelled at. Oh, hell no. <laughs> no. Okay. You go like, and then it becomes a place where we shut down and it's like, you can handle it. You got it. You you said you got it. And then yeah. when you get overwhelmed and overworked, you look at us like, why aren't you helping? And we mm-hmm. can't, we just can't fire back and say, Remember the last time I tried to help and how you got on my last nerve because I didn't do this the way that you wanted and you just nagged me? 
yeah, yeah, that's that's why I'm not helping right now. If you say that to your wife, then that shuts your wife down. Yeah. Because now all of a sudden she's like, oh, you just really don't care, which is absolutely not what's going on. So there's but, that. We're, but we're all supposed to read each other's minds. So that's what we assume is going on. And we assume that you know exactly. what we're assuming. <laughs> exactly. And so it's just a whole clusterfuck of stuff. It really is. And so like even even with me right now, going through some of the things that I'm going through and seeing the opportunity that lies in front of me with this whole scenario, I'm realizing that, you know, sometimes I'm just going to have to take a deep breath and just get stuff done. Yeah. So I can, because I've realized that there are certain things that my wife doesn't understand because she didn't grow up the way that I grew up. So she doesn't have the background information of the things that I have background information on. Yeah. So I have to lead the charge and show her what this looks like and show her what this means. And as I'm showing her, kind of easing her into why this is so important. We got into a small little little cluster today because I put a high chair in the middle of the room and I put my 17-month-old in the high chair. But this comes after it, my wife says. She's been into everything. She's just destroying everything. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, what's the one place in the house where she cannot destroy anything? It's in a high chair because she can't get down. She is strapped in that thing. And so all I did, put her in a high chair, gave her a snack, gave her a toy. She had a meltdown. And my wife was like, why are you leaving her in the chair? And I said, just leave her. She'll be fine. She's like, but she's in timeout. And I looked at her. I looked at my wife and I said, she stays. <laughs> my wife was like, and then afterwards, like she saw what was going on. She's like, well, you could have just communicated with me what was what you were doing. And I was like, honey, do I ever do anything without a reason? Do I look, seriously look like someone who's going to abuse her children? It's like, maybe I have something in mind. And I just need you to go with me. Like, don't ask questions. Just, just watch what I'm doing. But she's yeah. That. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, <laughs> I was just gonna say that is a, that is something that is very difficult between parents, especially with the differing parenting styles. I can. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a struggle that my husband and I have been working on, and we had to kind of get to a point where we made rules. Like one, we don't interrupt or or contradict what the other one is enacting as a discipline to the children in front of the children. That was the one thing my husband always had to say to me was like, every time I dole out a punishment or every time I give a lecture, blah, 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 blah. You tell me right there in front of the kids that I'm doing it wrong. And so I kind of was like, oh yeah, that, that doesn't really create a united front. That's what makes it easy for children to pit their parents against each other, which is a tactic my older teens used often with me and their father, my ex. And so I don't know. It was just kind of my husband putting those words together. That made me think back about all the times my older kids had done that with my ex. And then thinking about what kind of a picture that presents for your children and also what kind of behaviors and habits it creates for your children. Oh, well, that means the next time I want something, the one parent that gives me the harshest punishment or the toughest no, I'm, I'm going to ignore and go to the other parent. And so what that does is just creates more problems for the parents. Absolutely. 
Um, and, and that's that's one of those things where it was uh, a space where I had to look at my wife and say, I just need you to trust me sometimes. There, there are going to be some times where I just don't have the mental capacity to tell you exactly what I'm doing when I'm doing it. I just need you to trust that I know what I'm doing. I, I just need you to let me take the lead because that that's essentially what it is. I, I stepped up, I did something, and I need just need you to follow behind me. Don't worry, I'll explain it later. But the thing that had her so confused is because my wife at times can be very literal about some things and then very non-literal about other things. I've talked about, you know, sometimes using the high chair for a timeout, but I've also said that we can put her in the high chair when she's getting into everything and use that as something to help us be able to navigate cleaning the house and getting stuff done in the house. The part she didn't remember was putting her in the high chair just so we can get stuff clean because she gets into everything. What she heard was the high chair is a punishment chair. It really uh. isn't. I mean, the, that's what we have her crib for. Like when she gets like bratty, all right, you're off to the crib. We'll see you in like 10 minutes. <laughs> you can cool down. <laughs> yeah. The, the, and, and I told her, and I told her this after the fact, because after I put her to sleep, I told my wife, I was like, look, hun, just because we talked about the high chair being using that in, in a way that, you know, takes her, puts her in time out that's not the only way that I'll use the high chair. Like I, I'm pretty ingenious and I'm, I, I call a lot of audibles like in a football. So mm -hmm. I change, I, I sometimes change depending on their circumstance. And I'm realizing, you know, at this particular moment, what we needed wasn't timeout, but what we needed was a timeout. We didn't need a timeout, timeout, but we needed timeout so that we could get stuff done. Same chair, two different connotations. And so now do you use the high chair for your own timeout? Oh, yeah. <laughs> high chair is used for everybody's timeout. <laughs> and it works, you know? Give I her love a, that. That's a good idea. I've never used the high chair. I, I always had like a little like pop and play or playpen or something. But I hmm. like the high chair. Something I, I can keep in mind for my grandson. So That's good. That's good. Um, parenting strategies for the win. <laughs> yes. Okay, so I'm not sure how I can do a smooth segue, but I wanted to talk about, well, maybe we can. We're talking about emotions. Our, our little children are such emotional little creatures, oh but goodness, they yes. <laughs> don't really have the tools yet to turn the volume down on their emotions. Again, we were talking the other night about, well, and, and this was a phrase that I had read about, so I was kind of just like, profiting as my own actually and it was just this idea to like clean up your emotions right and by cleaning up your emotions you're understanding what the reactionary emotions are actually trying to tell you is underneath the surface and one thing that you had mentioned was that we need to recognize and, and I totally agree with this too we need to recognize that our feelings are so fleeting and so sometimes the emotions that we're feeling on the, uh, in the present moment aren't necessarily, A, relaying what we're actually feeling, and B, aren't necessarily anything we really need to hold on to. I was just wondering if we could go back to that topic and if you could kind of express again kind of what you did. You, you, you talked about how the physiology of emotions can mess with our internal dialogue. And I think we were speaking specifically to depression at the time. Oh, yeah. Um, so 
I, I, I do remember that I, I made a comment at the very beginning of our conversation that fundamentally, I think the question that you're asking was a little bit flawed. And it yeah, had, you didn't like my wording. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily you, but the wording just kind of like it was hard for me to digest, not because mm-hmm. of anything other than just my perspective on emotions and some experiences that I've had with emotions that have caused me to realize that number one, I can't say that this emotion is mine in the sense yeah. of like this anger that I'm feeling right now is my anger because when I'm done with the anger, where do I put it? I have nowhere to put it. Like when I'm done with the anger, it's like, literally it's like it entered my house when it was done with what it needed to do. It left my house and it's no longer there until a situation or circumstance comes up where I open the door and let anger in again. Our emotions, I I feel are very fleeting in the sense that we don't control when they come and we sure enough only can really control when we're going to send them out. But when they come, they come and they just kind of like come in unannounced. They show up, they sit down for a while, but when they're ready to go, they leave and then you can't find them anyway. And then we got into um, how does that affect depression? And that was where I think the powder keg was pretty much lit. (laughs) Yeah. Having gone through depression myself, I can only relate my own experience with depression. And with depression uh, came uh, suicide for me. And I tried to take my life, I think, twice. Didn't work either Mm -hmm. time. So I pretty much figured, well, if you can't take your life twice and you tried you had a good reason not to wake up, probably supposed to be be alive. So just gonna leave that as as it is. Um, But I realized a lot of my depression came from siding with stinky thoughts. Mm. It came from siding with thoughts that were negative and were dark and allowing them to fuel my thought life, to fuel my um, internal dialogue. It had nothing to do with any external circumstances, but everything to do with what was going on internally. And internally, my dialogue sucked. You'll never be this. You'll never be that. You're a horrible person. Look, see, even they ignore you. You're, you're always going to be like this. You're never going to be seen. Your voice is invaluable. You'll never be heard. Like, you're just a short black kid. Yeah, everybody's going to look at you funny. Nobody wants to pick you first. For, like, things like that. Yeah. You should just go kill yourself. Like at what Mm. point, at what point do we begin to take responsibility for our thoughts? Because that is the fundamental issue with, um, I won't say all depressions, but it's a fundamental issue with a lot of depression, taking responsibility for your own thought life. I'm not saying it's easy and I'm not saying that it will just be all candy hearts and roses, but I'm saying that if you take responsibility for your own thought life and you begin to dictate and deal with thoughts that you allow to stay, and if you begin to feed yourself thoughts that are actually positive, that help bring life, you'll see a marked difference in your life. And I can say that from personal experience. People 
talk down about mantras and, you know, talk, talking to yourself and encouraging yourself, getting into the mirror and, and pointing at yourself and saying, you are amazing. You know how badass you are. Do you know that you have the best abilities in music this side of, you know, the freeway? And I said the freeway because I can't say the world. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say the world. But you, you have some impeccable music abilities. Everybody who hears your music gets lifted up. Yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like you begin to talk to Like even as I was talking to my wall, talking to myself, I, I felt hyped. I got hyped real quick. I love that. I can relate to that too. I, I dealt with some bouts of depression. I had suffered from postpartum depression at 19 years old and I was delivering myself some nasty internal messages too. And I totally relate to the whole, the, the positive affirmations, the daily affirmations that that kind of stuff is what helped pull me out of my funk. Every time it was like my mind got stuck on the record and it kept skipping over and over just the nasty internal dialogues. And I had to go and pull the needle off the record and change the record. I mean, that's the best way I can describe it because it's that's what it felt like was going on. And it was the same statement, just skipping over and over. You're you're just a teenage mom. You're never going to be anything. Look at you couldn't even keep her father around. I mean, it was horrible messaging. And I think I had help. I think I was reading self-help books. You know, the things that we laugh at, especially when we're that young, we're like, look at all these old people. They need self-help. But I was facing a time in my life where I needed to help myself because I had another human being to be responsible for. Uh-huh. And I suppose that what I saw as an obstacle at the time actually did become an opportunity to force me to grow up faster and then also teach myself how to create a positive internal dialogue for myself that I, I wouldn't mind being stuck on repeat. And right. the thing is, is those daily affirmations, they're very helpful, but you know, the one thing I didn't prepare for was how quickly your ego can pull you back into your old habits and your own internal dialogues. And so there's a lot of rebounding. And so I love the stories when I hear people who break away from depression. I mean, I say that too. I broke away from depression, but actually the older I get, the more I think we're just supposed to go through cycles of the de- that kind of depression and maybe not severe depressions, maybe not postpartum depressions, maybe not manic depressions, but we go through these cycles of depressions and really the only thing that pulls us out are the internal messages we're willing to change within our own minds. And so I have a list in front of me. I read it every day of 12 little mantras that I remind myself to just kind of invigorate myself, to inspire myself, to remind myself I was here for a purpose. I'm here for a purpose. And my existence has already been defined literally by my existence. And that's enough. And I can only build off of that. So me too, I can relate. Depression can really pull you down, but you do have to, you, have, you do have to take a pause and really process and, and, and say, but am I contributing to my own depression? And how much of responsibility do I have to physician heal thyself? Uh-huh. I would, I would go so far to say is uh, when you said that um, it might be that we have to go through these cycles I would offer just a little bit of pushback, but not not much to say, oh, no, we're not supposed to. But more to say, I think the cyclic pattern is inevitable. Yeah. But what it is that we are going through should not be the same every time we go through it. 
Agreed. And yeah, and I think for me, it typically isn't. There's always some other door that's locked that I need to unlock to release something. Yeah. And I would say that would be um, just my only kickback on it is that I, I do see a lot of people go through the same bouts of depression. And usually those same bouts of depression have come because they haven't dealt with the obstacles that were going through that cycle of trying to get through that one obstacle. Just get that through that one obstacle. I would go so far to say, and actually this kind of reminds me of how the conversation a few days ago ended, where we were talking about taking responsibility of our emotions and of the things that we are going through and how in our society, even today, we're not taught to take personal responsibility. We're taught to throw personal responsibility responsibility out the window and put the blame on somebody else scapegoating it's what we're taught in our society yes amen i totally agree with that the problem with scapegoating and the problem with not taking responsibility is nothing actually ever gets solved internally and so we we pick up this pattern of pushing the blame on somebody else when really if we would just deal with ourselves the problem would actually disappear because it actually stems from within who we are rather than stemming from the outside coming in because it's our responses to the things that happen to us that are our responsibility. I would push back though and say we forget that maybe not so much that we forget but we don't respond to things. We react more uh, than we uh, respond. Uh, and uh. when we're reacting, we're not actually dealing with the reality or the severity of the issue. We're dealing with the initial insta emotion that causes us to react. That emotion that comes out of nowhere that is triggering something deeper, but it's not something that we're willing to go dive down and pull out. And so... Instead, we're like, here's my reaction. Someone needs to fix this so I don't react anymore. And instead of responding and then pulling it deeper back into ourselves, how am I personally responsible for what I am reacting to? Am I contributing to it? Do I participate in it? And that's the one thing that frustrates me about basically all of the issues in society, in, in, in my society, in the United States society is so many of the issues could be remedied if people just took a little bit of personal responsibility instead of expecting someone else to fix the problem or just showing you someone else to blame for the problem and never really dealing with it. So I hear you on that. And I think we typically, we we seem to always whittle down to that one fundamental issue whenever we're talking about what everybody else is outraged about. It seems to all boil down to that scapegoat I don't want to be responsible kind of mentality that has been basically indoctrinated into every system that we're a part of. Absolutely. I, I mean, getting back to what we were talking about with depression, like that actually takes personal responsibility to deal with. I know that it's not as easy as, you know, we're, we're, we're not going through a lot of the nuances and I understand that for the audience, but really when it comes down to it, when I say personal responsibility, the fact is that if you're willing to do something about what it is that you're going through, whether that means, hey, I'm going to go get myself counseling or, hey, I'm going to actually sit here and allow myself to talk to someone 
I'm going to mm-hmm. actually open up to my friends. Maybe they can help me out. That's that's taking an active participatory role and taking responsibility in what is going on with you. That is not saying that oh, you only did you only went to go to counseling. So. And that didn't work, so you didn't take personal responsibility. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the fact is that we have to actually own this thing. Like, if there's something going on internally with me, I can't blame it on a circumstance. I've got to own it and be like, okay, this is what happened. What will I do about it? That's what I mean by personal responsibility. We can't control, like like I was saying, we can't control the things that happen to us. We can control how we will A, react, B, respond, and C, what we'll do with those reactions and responses. So don't don't hear, hear it as if, oh my goodness, if you're not doing anything, like, no. Responsibility means that you're just taking a step. It doesn't have to be a big step. The fact that you're taking a step means that you're taking responsibility. And that's a huge thing. It, it's huge in the long run. Yeah. And I I totally hear you on that. And sometimes I can't help but wonder, and this just comes from, again, other things that I read and other perspectives that are shared. Um, Gabor Mate, he is a doctor and he has this book called When the Body Says No. And so what he has offered in his book is like his years of practice in medicine, looking at common issues, illnesses, ailments, and seeing how that relates to the kind of stress we have going on in our life, the mental stress and and how that has physiological consequences. And one of the discussions um, that he focuses on is this idea of depression. And depression is correlated with disconnection. And so when you talk about how, okay, so in order, when we start you know, processing and taking responsibility for our depression, we should be speaking to someone. I agree with that. I would go as far as to recommend that if you really want to break some of the the walls down with depression, you have to speak to somebody. It's that communication, that ultimate connection that gives you the space to really express what you're feeling that I think can can, can open up the pores to start releasing some of that negativity and that funkiness and that stinkiness that we hold inside. But I think it absolutely, I think there's so much that depression relates to disconnection that we're, it feels like so much work and so many efforts kind of work the way around it. Like they don't want to bring connection back into the focal point. And I think that's where therapy comes into play and why it's so important, why you know, we have a society that recommends that we support and edify the idea of mental health and that we encourage people to see a therapist. And I think we've noticed it and, and seen a shift over uh, a, a greater comfort in people talking about their therapists. I mean, Brene Brown comes to mind. I mean, like her whole, it seems like most of her transformation came as a result of her starting therapy and then sharing about the therapy. And so I find myself doing that too. I've I've been seeing a therapist since I was 13 years old. And so I've realized the importance of it because it allows you to connect to somebody. But again, I think we're seeing our society gravitate towards being more accepting of it. But for some reason, the depression rates, the suicide rates are showing kind of contradictory evidence that we're just not getting there with connection. 
Well, that definitely has a lot to do with the fact of even though it's widely more acceptable, acceptability does not mean that connection is actually happening. Yeah. Um, we are actually more disconnected as a society now than we were years ago when talking about depression wasn't a popular thing to do. So even though it's become more acceptable to talk about it, because we are no longer connecting like we used to, it doesn't matter if it's acceptable to talk about. Connection is the underlying thing that honestly, when it comes to most mental illnesses, in my opinion, it's connection that helps Connection and love are the two things that I believe that help reverse mental illness. But because we are more disconnected as a society, as a family unit, as friends, as loved ones, it doesn't matter how um, acceptable it is for us to talk to therapists because even our therapists, like, and don't get me wrong, there are some amazing therapists. There are also therapists who don't connect. And so... You, you have this conglomeration of things going on right now within our society. We are now more fully aware of how disconnected we are, yet we're not doing any much about the disconnection. In fact, we know we're disconnected, so it's because we're disconnected that we keep disconnecting. Well, like, I mean, there could be pushback that says, what are you talking about? We're more connected than ever. We have Facebook, we have Twitter, we have Snapchat, we have we have WhatsApp, we have all these ways to connect to people and we can have hundreds and thousands of friends and millions of followers. What do you mean we're not connected? Well, as I told my wife, um, I am really against our children growing up with tablets and Kindles. Yeah. Um, the reason being is because I remember back in the 90s, where we had to actually go face to face where we didn't have cell phones. We had pagers maybe, but in order to make a phone call, you had to go inside of the house, get on the phone and say, Hey, I'll meet you at such and such a place in 10 minutes, click that phone. And you had to bust your butt to get to where you're going to be in 10 minutes. Because if you didn't get there in 10 minutes, they was going to be waiting around for you. And there's probably going to be some, hands thrown because you wasted somebody's time <laughs> but that's that's a that's a different that's a type of connection right yeah we, we were responsible for the ways in which we interacted with our peers back in the 90s now we got cell phones and now all, we can ignore all the calls <laughs> now now i can just text you and say hey I know that we were supposed to meet like in 10 minutes, but I got to cancel because something came up. Meanwhile, forgetting that the person had to drive 30 minutes to get to where they were going to be and you just texted them 10. What kind of connection yeah. is that? Yeah. If anything, it's an afterthought because what it what what this does is it disconnects our hearts. We're no longer in tune with, oh, I need to be there because they're waiting for me. It's now, oh, I can just send a text and it's no big deal. No harm, no foul. They'll understand. But that's not how connection works. We used to live in a time where your word was your bond. If you said you were going to do something, it was expected that you would do it. Now in our Instagram, Facebook Messenger, Facebook, Twitter, you know, Snapchat era, oh, I can say something and then... Like 10 minutes before it happens, be like, hey, I can't be there because I got 
the cell phone so I can text you and let you know why I can't be there. Yeah. And what, what I'll, you know, I'm just thinking about this because it's actually happened to me. We also, with that, adva- those, this technological advantages that we have, we can also break bonds and, and cause disconnections greater when we're willing to lie to somebody and then we get caught because we're hopping on social media posting about something and I'm, I'm just saying this because I've seen it happen like okay I'm, I'm having this birthday party for my kids you can't make it because you're sick and then 20 minutes later I see you posting on your Facebook that you're actually just Netflixing and chilling right now like blow me off and then lie to me about it and now I have to find out about it and now you're mad because I found out about it but you're the one that posted about it and suddenly I'm the bad guy when you're the one that blew me off. And we get to do this and twist and flip and instantly disconnect with people with no regard or consideration for consequence or the feelings of other people. And then if that doesn't do it, we can unfriend and and block and unfollow. And it's like, we don't even recognize that the connections we should be valuing, and I don't like to use the should word, but I'm going to in this instance, or that we ought to value we we don't because we see we think that we have this quantitative pool of choices based on all the numbers of the followers the friends and the 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 quote unquote connections that we have on on the internet but when taken in regard to how that affects your day-to-day life you're saying that it's okay to just cut someone out that quickly because uh, I felt like it. It's like, it's like our friends become as fleeting as our feelings do. And that is a really good topic for another conversation. It is. It definitely um, is. I, I, I'm only saying that because like friends and feelings, they are pretty synonymous with how they work these days. Rather, our understanding of what friendship is works very similar to how our feelings work. Yes. And so that's a really interesting parallel and something that we actually ought to be able to expand on um, at a later point. But I'd go so far to say this, with the invention of the interwebs and, you know, social media, we also take connection to a whole new low because now I can get away with saying anything to anybody, Mm. however I want to. So now connection is now at an all-time low because now I'm using our connectedness via social media to say things to people that I would never say to their face. Yeah. Because I, I don't I have the that. guts I don't have the guts to say something to your face, but because I'm behind a computer screen, you can't see me, I can't see you, you can't hear my tone of voice, I can't hear your tone of voice. I can just cut you down as and not even worry about it. Yeah, we can just walk away from the screens after we insult somebody and have no regard for <laughs> anything that follows thereafter. Right. No regard. That's that's what's happened to our connection. So it's true. do I think that social media has a place in our society? Absolutely. But with every advancement, there are going to be some major negative things that we have got to consider. We have got to consider that the more we're on social media, the more we're losing real connection, authentic connection, because we're relying on like, okay, so 
Here, here's, here's a good point. I had close to 1,000 quote-unquote friends on Facebook. Okay? I have, it's more than me. <laughs> I've deactivated my Facebook. Yeah. Do you know how many of those 1,000 people that I actually stay in contact with? I know I'm one of them. Yes, you are one of them. But I, I wouldn't say it's more than 30 people. Dang. I wouldn't say it's more than 30 people. I've got 1,000 people as friends on Facebook, and I don't stay in contact with more than 30 of them. You know, even of the almost 1,000 friends I have on Facebook and the meager numbers on Twitter and Instagram, there's only maybe two handfuls of people, maybe three handfuls mm -hmm. of people that I actually extend energy towards in maintaining a connection with them and in, in getting to know them and understanding who they are and, and you know, inquiring about their lives and their families and their hobbies and their interests and their beliefs. Mm -hmm. But other than that, it's like, you just have all these people as a demonstration of whatever kind of quantitative experience you are expected to have demonstrated. And it means really nothing. But it means something to the algorithms. Ah, yes. We are the algorithm slaves. We're the algorithm we're slaves to the algorithms. And so yeah. we want those numbers to be high because that is equate it equates to social status and social standing. Yeah. But it doesn't equate to connection. And this is my point. Social media has been great to get us connected, but it is also sucked the life out of true connection because yeah. we've got 500, 600 people on Facebook. We got hundreds of people following us on Instagram. But how many of those people do we actually, how many of those people actually invest time into us? Exactly. How many of those people actually could care about what's really going on with me to the point where they will be willing to actually give me a phone call? Because most people in some way, shape or form could either message me on Messenger and hold Lisa three minute conversation they could email me because my email was available at the time and the ones that are really close they could call me but how many of those people that have my phone number my email address and my messenger actually do that very limited amount very limited you know what's funny is i and, and i i'm with you here and i love facebook and i love social media and i love the internet because it's allowed me to meet people that do not live in my area that i connect with that i can relate with like you and and i have other friends in other states all over the country where there are serious meaningful relationships built there but that's because we took it off of facebook that's yep. because i was like hey you want to do a zoom call with me i mean i had this one friend um she created such a great idea that I further extend to everyone. And she was like, do you want to have a lunch date with me? And I'm like, uh, don't you live in like Nebraska? Yeah. Well, how are we going to do that? Zoom. Oh my gosh. And so from then I would, that was what I was doing. Do you want a video messenger with me? And some people are like, wait, what? Um, like face to face. Yes. Or even the friends that only live like an hour or two away from me are, are super super uh, social with me on Facebook. But as soon as I'll say, I say, Hey, you want me to drive out there and you want to grab some coffee? They're like, wait, what you want to get together in real life? I'm like super busy. And I'm like, we just spent the last hour going back and forth. <laughs> you can't have been that busy. It's like all of a sudden people are scared of actual 
face-to-face or physical contact. It's like, wait, I got really comfy with this space here where I can just shut my phone off or hit end or walk away from a messaging conversation and not feel guilty about it. You're asking me to come into a space that's far more intimate than I'm used to. And I don't think I'm ready for that kind of level of our relationship. That's how it feels like I get with people. And it's men or women. Like one of my friends, I've, I've known her since we were nine. And I was like, do you want to do a video chat? She's like, oh my God, I don't have my makeup on. And I'm like, well, me neither. Who cares? And I just thought it was so funny that so many people are like, oh, wait, I, mm, you know, I'm all about connecting, but this is my limit. I mean, you got to think about it. It's like we've gotten into a very, for as deep a thinker as so many people are, they've become so shallow. Yes, very superficial people. It's very superficial. And so we have these, these, these things where it's like, yeah, we just finished, rather than just talking on Messenger, I know you have an iPhone. I know you have an Android that has a phone. Let's video chat. Um, yeah. Um, um, I don't have my makeup on. We're friends. Does it matter if you have a makeup on? I know. Like, I don't care. Like, I don't but need I, but to I, have I, makeup I just on. Don't, I don't look good. <laughs> You act as if I'm trying to hit on you. I don't care what you look like. I just wanted to see your face and say hello because there's something that happens when you can actually see somebody. Yes, exactly. I got one time, if I did that, I might get vulnerable. Um, Wait a minute. Is vulnerability a bad thing all of a sudden? Well, yeah. Okay, what does vulnerable mean to you? Like, you know, Uh I might tell, tell you things. Oh, you mean things about yourself? Yeah. Um, that's kind of the point I want to know about you. <laughs> it's, it's a crazy thing that people don't like, that's why I get so get the way that I do when we have our conversations it's because <laughs> yeah. you're one of the few people that understands the, the absurdity of what's been happening with our culture and our generation. It's yeah. just absolutely absurd. The more we progress, the more we regress. Exactly. Definitely. Yeah. We are retarding ourselves as a culture. Big I mean, time. We, we haven't even got into the critical thinking aspect of it and schooling and all of that stuff. Cause that's just another powder keg waiting to explode. Oh, you know, we could pop off on schooling. Oh my gosh. Homeschool mom over here. And you are very aware of the indoctrination. We could, oh we could definitely episodes, a series. <laughs> <laughs> like my wife and I, we are more than likely going to be homeschooling for various Yay. reasons, but Yay. homeschooling I, is a thing. Yeah, I know. I should do. I have. I've had a lot of interest and in people saying that I should do a homeschool episode, and so, and I'm seeing so many more of my friends homeschooling. Like girls I went to high school with, they're like, "I'm a homeschool mom now," and I'm like, "This is amazing!" It's a it's a great movement that's growing, and and. From what I'm perceiving, it's not one of those cultish, Mormon, crazy, I'm going to raise my children to hate gay people kind of homeschooling going on. It's a little bit more aware. Yeah. So what I found is that even the, the people that I'm talking to that are homeschooling, it's come down to they're realizing that critical thinking skills are at an all time low. We can't have a productive society that doesn't feature 
people that think critically. And a lot of this comes down to, we've been indoctrinated in our schools. You have to study this way to get an A on this exam so you can go to college and that's all you need to do. We haven't taught our kids to question everything. I remember when we were supposed to ask good questions, like our homework assignments, come up with good questions to ask your teacher. I remember those days where I was in junior high and high school and we had a project that was due, but part of our project was to come up with questions that we could present to our professor so that we could go in a different direction if we needed to. But I have to come up with questions. So I've got to figure out what questions do I need to ask? I need help. Where where should I go to get help? You know? And so you had to go through this process of finding finding things like searching seeking things out like it was an amazing experience but it was hard I remember those I remember those I was just gonna say I used to remember like I it kind of almost created an anxiety for me but at the same time it pushed me to try and be clever and creative is asking the teachers the questions because when they were all presented you wanted to be that one cool kid that had that great question that might have made your teacher think a little bit more as well and it's like in that moment you could see everybody's like motors turning in their head. Yep. And that's what we're losing out, missing out on, I should say. That's what we're missing out on in society today. Yeah, because everything is insta, insta reaction, insta, insta reply. Did you leave me on red? Did you just leave me on red? Why didn't you respond to me? I'm processing. Can I process? No, insta. I saw that you seen my message and you didn't respond. What's up with that? You're ghosting me. Why are my you ghosting daughter, me? <laughs> my daughter said that. And I'm like, are you serious right now? What, she read it two minutes ago. Why hasn't she responded to me? And I'm like, maybe she's thinking, did you ask her a question? Yeah, there you go. Don't you want her to give you a good answer? I no, guess. I want an instant answer. Exactly. Ugh. It's I not in like five seconds. It's not a good answer. I know we need Insta reactions, Insta, Insta pictures, Insta updates, Insta erections, Insta depression fixes. We need Insta uh, fix everything. You said Insta erection. Oh, that was Insta erection. You know that's, that's what men are. I don't even want to have to even have desire. I don't want to have to think. I just want to be hard. That takes the fun out of it, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, it could it, it could be the same for you know. Us as men, like, can you just be insta wet, please? <laughs> <laughs> like, you Some just take it. Can be. You're Some just taking too long. Be. Just okay, take it too long. Well, like, no, so we there's got, an got, actual. <laughs> now, hold on. There is an actual. There is an actual um, definition for that. It's called. It's called. Hold on. Something non concordant. Now I can't even remember it. But. <laughs> <laughs> Emily Nagoski, PhD, writer of Come As You Are, she speaks about it. And so, and, and what it is, it's an actual thing. Sometimes there's just a delayed response. It's like your brain is not lined up with the valve to, to get the liquid flowing. And so it just needs a little bit more time. See, and, and like, like you said, sometimes men just want it. Like, I need you to connect real quick because I ain't got time. Like us to go i want to pull pull out this one minute quitter <laughs> oh man what a waste of energy let me tell you 
I mean, how long that shit? Drive it like a tractor. Put hours on it. Come on. Sometimes you don't have hours to put on it. You gotta make hours. So, sometimes you got to get one off before work. Oh, you know I don't do the morning things anymore. See, good idea. See, bring that. it back. You gotta, you gotta. <laughs> sometimes you just need to crank one out before you go to work to get your engine <laughs> revved up and ready to go to, to get you relaxed. So you're just like. I'm cool for the rest of the day. Today is going to be a good day. <gasps> is that how, is that your best part of waking up in the morning? The Folgers in your cup? That's not Folgers <laughs> though. <laughs> what would we call that? And would we have to censor it? <laughs> we would probably have to censor it, but, <laughs> but long story short, like there are some things that I can understand, you know, like, when I'm hungry, I don't want to wait for, I mean, when you're just really doggone hungry. Yeah. Waiting for the Cheetos. <laughs> waiting, waiting for that home cooked meal out the crock pot to be done in an hour is not going to work for me. Or children. It does not work for children either. It does not work for children, especially children. So it's like, what do I have real quick? You know what I go to? I go to the man pouches. What is that? Also known as my kids' applesauces, mangoes, oh, like purees. Yeah. The man. Pop I buy is. all those. Yeah, I buy those for everybody in the house for whenever anyone's like, "I'm hungry. There's nothing to eat." There's a fruit pouch. Go squeeze it. <laughs> that's pretty much what it is. That's the insta satis. <laughs> that's insta satisfaction, the healthy way, but it'll get you through exactly until dinner's ready. But that you know, that, there are times where insta is actually a a good thing. Yeah. But for, I suppose. But for all intents and purposes, for everything that we've talked about on this podcast so far, Insta is not necessarily going to develop connection or patience or anything that is of use for us in growth and development. Exactly. You cannot have Insta growth. No, you, you just don't. There's, there is no miracle growth or transformation in life. No. Even now, check this out. Even those things that say, oh, yeah, it's Instagram stuff, that still takes a few minutes for it to actually grow. It's not like, Poof. woo, there's my tree. I know, right? Remember the Chia Pet? It still took time. You it's were like, that shit's going to pop out as soon as I spread that little stick around. And then you get it and you're like, uh, 12 days later, right? I, this is not looking like the commercial. This does not. That, that was fast forwarded for sure. This does not look like what they said it was going to look like. My chichichia pet needs to be a little <laughs> bit faster growing, okay? <laughs> and so, like, there's there's that. And, and we, for the thinkers and the intellectuals, we realize that there's no quick way to grow. There's no quick way to, to gain strength. There's no quick way for transformation. Although there is a shortcut for transformation. And that shortcut is going through your obstacles with a smile, going through your obstacles and seeing them as opportunity. That is the quickest way to transformation. When Coke you, and a smile. Like, like I'm going to tell you this, like from what I've seen as a personal trainer, the people that look at, look at tr uh, fitness training as a chore versus the people who look at fitness training as a joy, the people who look at fitness training as a joy enjoy quick transformations people that look at this like this this thing sucks i don't want to ever do this again it takes them forever 
So your perspective on the obstacle that you go through makes a whole heck of a lot of difference on how quick you're going to transform and how quick you're going to grow. If we can come to these obstacles with an optimistic, like, if this is an open door that's ready for me, or this is a door ready to be opened for me, then we're more than likely going to see transformation happen very quickly. I know for my wife, she gained baby weight, you know? I would say two weeks after birth, she was down to pre-baby weight. Did she just shift her mentality? Or does uh, she have a wonderful metabolism? No, she had a baby that was just drinking from the boob. Nice. <laughs> I think the baby siphoned off all that weight because, um, true story, baby went from five pounds, seven, seven ounces. We're at month number three now, and she's about 15, almost 16 pounds. That's amazing. The first month, no, when we hit month number two, I was like, my baby is fat. Like She was born in May, wasn't she? Yeah, she was born in May. Yeah, my grandson was born in May too. Yeah, my youngest is chunky. chunky, chunky. My grandson is only hovering around 10 pounds, but to be fair, he was born three months pre-month. Yeah, he's I mean. He's gained his weight. <laughs> he's gained, he's, he's at a good space right now. Yes. But. When I tell you, like, I looked at, I don't know what happened. She went from very, very petite and tiny to, oh, my God. <laughs> well, that's good. She's well fed. And your other your other daughter was finicky, right? Mm-hmm. My other daughter had yeah. reflux. So yeah. she did not get as big as as my second. So it was yeah, very interesting, the, the dynamic. But at 17 months, my oldest is now just like, trying to talk up a storm. She knows how to say her name. She knows how to say other people's names. She's saying bye-bye, saying all done. Like she's saying all these things at 17 months. I'm like, hmm, it's not so bad. Not so bad, kid. Wait till she starts telling you no. That's fun. When she starts telling me no, that's when she's going to start feeling the fiery sensation of a flick to the thigh. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not one of those parents that says, don't spank your children. I'm like, nah, I think half the problem is right now, people don't discipline their kids and their kids wild out. And all that Mm. can be stopped at the early formative years. Like you just set a precedence. Like you don't do this. A equals B, which equals consequence. So don't do that. You know, we slapped our kids on the hands and we, I think we swatted butts a few times when they were little Uh and that was about it with my older kids I spanked them well into their teenage years and I had to learn from that and I had to grow from that because that's what I was brought up with and Uh I learned just so I think there's a difference in how you discipline and number one was like don't go at it with anger right but go at it outside of anger and then it was like I don't know my teenage my, my older two got to a point where they were like they were literally bigger than me. And it was kind of like, eh, I don't think spanking's really working anymore because it, it doesn't phase you. But I have other ways now. You want to use right. my car? Oh, what you going to do for mama? You know? Right. <laughs> and, and I think for for my, my oldest, Aria, she's going to be that one where, you know, there's going to be the flick on the hand or the flick on the, on the thigh. Because she only really seems to understand when there is some kind of stimulus involved. 
And see, you will also probably notice, too, that what works with one child may not work with the other. I mean, I had one child. I could, like, go, I'm going to spank you. And she'd be like, okay, okay. And the other one, I'd literally have to spank in order for him to take me seriously. Right. And so it's just, like, sometimes the threat. And I really don't like that word because I know how people will twist it and be like, no, you're justifying violence. But I'm not. But it's just sometimes that threat of it's going to get worse than me raising my voice. How far do you want to push me? That's enough for a kid to go, oh, you're serious right now. Okay. And that was my, that's actually my older brother versus me. You know, my older brother was, you, you just raise your voice at him a little bit. He's docile. You got him in the palm of your hand. Me, on the other hand, go ahead, raise your voice. I'll, I'll raise you a raised voice myself. Okay, yeah. you, you spank me. I'm still going to, you're going to have to spank me like twice. Then I might get it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I was the defiant child. And like most people don't realize, like as a defiant child, I actually, the fact that my parents spanked me, a lot of people are like, oh, they shouldn't have had to do that. I was like, actually, I'm really glad that they did. In hindsight, like looking at where I'm at now in my 30s versus where I could be and looking at some of my friends that we grew up very similar, but their parents never spanked them and where they're at in comparison. I'm really glad my parents like knew that they couldn't just raise their voice at me. They knew that I was a child that you, you they've literally saved my life uh, to be quite honest, growing up black, you know, I have a kind of a bullseye on my back, you know, cause yeah. black male, two strikes against me already black and male. So, um, I've been pulled over. I've been like, and the lessons that they taught me, like, like I, I was telling my wife, Kirsten, they only ever spanked us for three things for lying, for being disobedient and for disrespecting. And you yeah. know, what are some of the biggest causes for black men or minorities at, at a whole to get into trouble with the law, lying, disrespecting the authority that is there and being willfully disobedient. Do you think any of that defiance of authority can be traced back to this post-traumatic slave syndrome? Um, I would not I would not be surprised if it did. Yeah. Um, I think that there are a lot of things that are just written in our DNA that most yeah. people don't realize carry from generation to generation. I don't have to have experienced slavery to have that imprint of that on me because it's in the DNA. Yeah. The trauma that's passed on and the behaviors that are duplicated. Uh-huh. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. It made me really understand. And I, I don't even know how to say this, but it, it made me understand a wider perspective of the cliche narratives that white people have of black people and that the angry black woman or the defiant black man, it was when I started delving into post-traumatic slave syndrome that I was like, no, that's not what it is. It's generational trauma Uh that's been passed down through different types of reactions and behaviors that just haven't had the healing and the closure and maybe the correction because maybe more or less the society continues to create an expectation of it to be repeated. Because, I mean, in a lot of cases, if black people don't act like black people, according to white people, then what happens? Like you're outside of the norm of perspective 
you're breaking all of the rules. And then it's like, well, now what happens? We have these expectations. I mean, I know I can see it from my view as a white person that there are societal narratives and expectations. We expect this is what the black person is. But we're not willing to go beyond the surface of the narrative and go, but it's more than that. Exactly. Uh, A really good friend of mine always says your issues are in your tissues. And I'm a full believer of that. I love that. Your issues are in your tissues. Absolutely. All of the issues that we deal with, whether they be uh, anxiety, fear, frustration, all of those things are in your tissue. Um, Mm -hmm. Have you ever noticed how when you get a massage in certain areas that sometimes after your massage, you get a little bit sick? Mm, yeah it's because there's a release of toxin within the body because you have now broken up tissue to allow for more blood flow but in breaking up that tissue it also releases the toxins that were lodged there and this is another it's another reason why you're instructed to drink a lot of water after you get a massage because it helps flush those toxins out of the system yeah doesn't it also help keep your muscles from going into shock too yes it does yeah. yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and so one of the, it's one of those things, but how, how would you know that there are toxins within your tissue? Are those toxins stressors? Because we always go to massage therapists to get massages when we're stressed out. Yeah. What kind of toxins are created from stress? You know, those are the kinds of questions that I begin to ask because if our issues are in our tissues, well then, Hey, you're, you're really anxious right now. You should go get a massage. Really so how do we out. massage our issues out of our tissues? The, the whole even, the physical act of massage is what helps release those things. I don't understand the, the, the science or the physiology behind it. But what I can tell you is when you have a stress knot in your shoulder and that thing gets worked out, you, are, you all of a sudden get become very clear-headed and very relaxed. Well, and, you know, there's some types of yoga positions that if performed accurately can actually release so much tension and buildup that it it provokes you to cry and to weep because you can literally feel the weight of that burden of that stress just release out of you. And I, I think that go, touch touch is such an important way of helping us release our traumas and our triggers and our stress and is a another way to connect. And it doesn't mean that we're directly connecting with the person that's touching us, but that connection creates such a spark of energy mm-hmm. that it can release so much. I love that. Yeah. And so that's, that's what I'm, you know, trying to get at with, you know, even the post-traumatic slave syndrome, those issues are within the tissue of generations. And so, all right. Oh, finish, please. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, no, it's fine. Um, Those issues are within the tissues of the generations that have come and gone and are here now. And so there are things that happen that, you know, I don't know why I have such a reaction towards law enforcement. Although over the years, I've been able to curb that reaction down because I've been able to deal with my own personal issues. I didn't know. But one of the things that I do realize is my mom and dad saved my life I mean, on two different occasions because what they 
drilled into us as the reasons why we got spanked were the very reasons that my life was saved. Hey, when somebody in authority asks you to do something, you just do it. Don't disrespect them. Because if you disrespect someone, it's going to cause them to go from zero to 100 real quick. And when you go from zero to 100 real quick, sometimes you lose yourself. And don't lie. If you lie to someone, you're going to be in more trouble than you realize. Those were, the, those were the only reasons why my brother and I ever got spanked. Only reasons we ever got spanked. And as a black man, I'm actually really grateful that those were the reasons that we got spanked. Because it, I appreciate that my parents spanked me as well. I really do. I, I mean, I hated it at the time, but uh -huh. it it did. And, and for me, myself, I already have such a problem with authority. Like, I am not good with authority. And it was, had they not done that, I I think I would have, I would have been arrested far more than what I have already. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I wouldn't have remembered the lessons and the reasons why I was spanked and what that was trying to deter and put that into application into any present process that was going to provide me a protection against something similar so that, that they did that. And I'm not encouraging people to go spank your kids. I'm just <laughs> saying I appreciate that my parents did that for me. I don't hate on them for it. And, and I would go so far personally, I, I won't encourage or discourage anyone from spanking their children. What I will say is learn your children. If you learn your children and you learn what they need and how they're processing, hey, you may have children that just don't need to be spanked. That's great. Some yeah. of y'all have baby's kids and they just need an ass whooping. I mean, but you know what I'm saying? Like, there are some kids where it's just like, yeah, you can try your best to talk them down and you can try to reason with them. But for some reason, it's when you have that stimulus, that's what clicks their brain into processing mode. I don't understand yeah. why, but I was, yeah. that, I was that child. And we all have different stimuluses that work for us, but I think we're both in agreement. It was that particular stimulus that, that kind of helped mold us to understand the importance of some rules and laws so that we could keep ourselves in check. Yeah. And I, I can speak for, you know, having nephews, my brother and sister-in-law, very rarely, I think if ever, have they ever had to spank my nephews and my nieces. Very rarely. Because their children are just almost saints. <laughs> perfect little angel <laughs> like i'm serious though these kids i'm like how do you do it bro your kids are just like very well mannered very well behaved they just chill out like even when they were younger they just chilled out they didn't do crazy like my my oldest daughter that's crazy they're just really mellow and chill and we're just gonna sit right next to daddy and mommy and we're just not gonna say a peep and we're gonna be okay <laughs> like what kind of kid you got <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you got your tenfold from your mama and daddy. I I mean, probably. I know. I know. My mom said you're probably going to have kids that are just like you. My mom said the same thing, and she was right. And and one of the very few times she was right. <laughs> <laughs> she ain't getting credit, but she was right on that. I was like, don't like. That's one thing that I will never. I can't say I'll never say to my kids, but 
it's one thing I'm going to try not to tell my kids is that they're going to have yeah. kids like that. You're going to have bad little shits just like you are. That's <laughs> going to be your curse. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not into cursing my kids. I want them to know that, hey, even though you may have had some rough patches as children, you guys were amazing. And I yeah, really want, we all, you know? Yeah, we all start as little, out as little shits. And, you know, look at us now. And right. with that... I think now I am going to cut you off. But what I want to be able to do before we cut is, is there a way that people can connect with you and reach out to you, especially if you are just check and see if you're available for life coaching? How can people connect with you, Cordell? Um, the best way to connect with me would be on Instagram, because that is probably the only thing that I use right now. So my Instagram, if you guys want to reach out to me, is perspective and i will spell that out for you guys it's p-e-r-s-p-e-k underscore tv all right and i will be sure to include your contact information in our in our little introduction for the podcast and for our listeners and i just want to thank you cordell for joining me on this episode of recorded conversations this has been so much fun Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I do appreciate it. Here's the part of the show where I let you know how you can connect with me and support me if you're interested in. I can be found on Facebook at Danielle Kingstrom, Twitter and Instagram at D Kingstrom. And for more of my written work, you can find me as a contributing writer for Patheos Progressive Christian. And I do have a Patreon page. If you're interested in financially supporting my work while also receiving excerpts from my upcoming book, Enfleshed, Making Monogamous Relationships Real, and for additional content, videos, sneak peeks into interviews that I'm working on, and all-around good stuff, seek me out at patreon.com slash Danielle Kingstrom. Thank you for joining. Please make sure you subscribe and share with your friends. Take care.